It's time for our review of the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2. I've been using Samsung's folding phone for about four weeks now, and I'm ready to weigh in with my thoughts. Is the fold for you? Find out here. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week, our final week before our month-long hiatus, we have our full review of the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2. Samsung's folder checks a lot of boxes, and I'll be breaking it all down for you. And on the exact opposite side of the spectrum, we also have the Wise Watch, the $20 smartwatch from the smart home company, whose sole mission is to undercut basically everyone. I reviewed it over on Digital Trends. Cliff is going to review it here, and we'll get to all of that. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. We've talked before about how you don't own anything you buy digitally on the internet. Ironically, I actually just bought a movie on Amazon last night. From movies to music, people buy thousands of dollars of stuff online, and they don't own any of it. And if that sounds stupid... That's because it kind of is. But unlike most other forms of stupidity we talk about on this show, and there are a lot, in this case, I'm stupid, and you're probably stupid, and probably most of the people you know are stupid, so as the saying goes, stupidity plus company, right? As long as we're all stupid together, it's not that stupid. Well, no, that's actually wrong. But at least we can all feel better about ourselves. What was I saying? Oh, right. Apple is being sued for terminating an Apple account with over $25,000 of digital purchases on it. Reasons for the account termination are actually irrelevant, according to the suit. If Apple cancels your Apple ID, then you can no longer access any materials associated with the account. And the suit claims that that's a big bunch of bushy. And the lawsuit is right. Apple is fighting it, of course, but the implications of this suit could be huge. If Apple loses it may lose the right to either terminate accounts or at least it'll have to make digital purchases available in a different way. If anything, the recent rise in non-fungible tokens shows that it is possible to own a piece of digital content. Does that mean we'll see some kind of similar mechanism come out for Amazon and Apple and other digital purchases? I doubt it, but this has the potential to be a really interesting case, so we will be paying attention to it. Last week, Apple released a new 12.9-inch iPad Pro with the M1 chip. This week, we find out that the Magic Keyboard from the 2018 and 2020 versions of the iPad Pro won't work with the new iPad. The result is that if you buy a brand new iPad Pro, if you want the Magic Keyboard, you're going to have to shell out another $349 for the 2021 version of that Magic Keyboard. The 2021 iPad Pro is about half a millimeter thicker than previous generations, so that's why things get a little screwy. The good news is the new Magic Keyboard is backwards compatible with the iPad Pro 2020 and 2018. I mean, that's not really good news because, let's face it, if you were going to upgrade something this year, it probably would have been the iPad not the keyboard. I mean, 
It's kind of a dick move, but The Verge speculates that it's due to the micro-LEDs going into this year's iPad, so at least there's a reason behind it. It's just not a very good reason. All the same, if you're going to drop $2,300 on a new 2TB iPad, I guess another $350 isn't that big of a deal. And yeah, that's the positive we're going to take from this. Samsung has been making a big deal about upcycling old phones to cut down on electronic waste, and spoiler alert, I've got an article coming out on that on Android Central in the next couple of weeks, FYI. And that's a really good thing, because after years of people trading in their phones every 24 months or so, there's a literal ton of smartphones being thrown away basically every day. LifeWire took a deep dive into Samsung's upcycling program and pulled out some interesting use cases for old phones. Uh, for example, if you keep an old phone around to use as a GPS, that's a great way to not drain your primary phone's battery while navigating across town or across the country. As long as you pull up directions before you leave Wi-Fi, the phone automatically downloads all routes so that they're available offline. You can also use your phone as a security camera or as an all-purpose device for reading books and listening to music. Any task that you can offload from your main device is a bonus to the battery life that you're going to see. It's actually not a terrible idea. Other ideas that come directly from Samsung include using your old phones as light and sound sensors. When darkness falls, you can use your phone to automatically turn on lights using smart things, stuff like that. It's an interesting idea, especially if you're like me and you have literal boxes of extra phones just laying around. Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, is partnering with Spotify to build a mini player into the Facebook interface that lets you play music and podcasts while you're catching up with your racist uncles. The partnership was announced earlier this week and includes both Android and iOS apps in 27 markets around the world. It does not include the web interface just yet, but we'll see if that's coming soon. I think the advantage here is to not have to switch back and forth between apps. Most Android phones would have the player and a notification, so there wouldn't be too much to do to switch back and forth. But all the same, I can see why this would be helpful. So hopefully you're listening to this podcast while at the same time discovering how many neo-Nazis you have among your friends and former schoolmates, but preferably you're listening to this podcast on a phone that doesn't even have the Facebook app installed because friends don't let friends use Facebook. Google Messages is rolling out a new design for Google's RCS text client, and it looks suspiciously like Samsung's One UI interface in Samsung's messaging client. The reason for this is because Samsung recently made Google Messages the default messaging app on the S21 phones outside of the United States, but that doesn't really feel like a Samsung app. So, Google is being quite accommodating by changing its UI to work with Samsung so it feels more like a native app, at least on the S21 series of phones. Personally, I don't have a problem with this. One UI is a great interface designed to put actionable elements towards the bottom of your screen where your thumb can, you know, actually reach them. Changing up the Google messaging app to do the same thing is perfectly fine, and if it brings Samsung more under Google's umbrella, then that's a good thing. Of course, this feels more like Google coming under Samsung's umbrella, but then again, this is not the first time that Google has borrowed some UI or functionality from other OEMs. It's not even like the 10th time, it's more like the 206th time or something. Apple, finally, pushed out iOS 14.5, which brings a lot of improvements to the iPhone, the most notable of which is to allow your iPhone to unlock using the Apple Watch because, you know, you're wearing a mask because, you know, you're supposed to be wearing a mask. This is a very needed upgrade, even though it's like 
you know, a year too late. Face ID, which is, of course, biometrically sound, got thrown for a loop when the entire world started wearing masks all the time. Who knew? Regardless, this is a nice update, and it's good to know that it'll be available going forward, even if you do have to specifically own an Apple Watch for it to work. It's a very Apple move, so we really can't be surprised by it, but seriously, Apple, it's about damn time. Predictions are always a tricky thing. Maybe you can see a thing coming, and maybe you get a little optimistic about it. Five years ago, Lyft co-founder and President John Zimmer said that by this year, a majority of rides in Lyft would be done in autonomous cars. Yeah, well, it turns out autonomous cars are hard, so that one didn't really pan out. Zimmer also said that by 2025, car ownership in the city would be a thing of the past. Uh, whoops. So, now, it's easy to say five years later that neither of these things are going to happen, but I, for one, happen to agree with Zimmer that both of those things will happen eventually. But five years was an optimistic time frame, for sure. I could see that happening in maybe 20 years, 25 years, but certainly not five. By the way, Zimmer made these predictions because Lyft was working on autonomous vehicles at the time. Emphasis on the word was because this week Lyft sold all of its autonomous division to Toyota for $550 million, which honestly doesn't seem like all that much. So maybe Lyft wasn't even close. So Lyft will be like Uber after all and sell off its autonomous car plans until it can just buy a fleet of them from another company that has the wherewithal to actually develop them, which is honestly probably the smarter financial move, especially if you're Lyft, or it's more accurate to say, especially if you're not Uber. Amazon introduced a new line of Kindle Fire 10 tablets, and before you ask, no, I will not be ordering one for review. I got as much of a dose of Kindle Fire tablets with the Kindle Fire HD 8 Plus from last year. Thank you very much. I assume that the operating system is still the same. It's great if you happen to want to consume Prime content. Otherwise, it's hard to use in basically every other way. Amazon also updated the Fire line with a new Fire tablet for kids with the same bonuses, the kid-friendly case, the Kid Plus subscription, and no questions asked replacement policy. By the way, this tablet is called the Kindle Fire HD 10 Kids Pro, and whoever thought we would see the words kids and pro back-to-back in a product name. And that's where we are as a society, people. One interesting element to this is the release of the Kindle Fire 10 Productivity Bundle, which starts at $219 and includes a year of Microsoft 365 personal subscription and a Finti detachable keyboard case. Apparently, Amazon wants to start selling its tablets to professionals trying to get a little work done on the go. I'm almost tempted to order that just to try it out, but... That's not really a leap I want to make here. It's not significantly cheaper than the Lenovo Duet, which, if you ask me, is a much more productivity-focused machine than a Kindle Fire. So that's where my money's going. The tablets are in pre-order from now until May 26th, so if you want to jump on one, there is a link in the show notes and at benefitofadow.com. But seriously, just get a Duet. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank God. God, Microsoft is finally fixing a bug that I had been dealing with on the Lenovo ThinkBook that I just reviewed, but curiously, not on my MSI laptop. The bug caused windows that were spread across multiple screens to all collapse into one screen or the other when the laptop went to sleep. Now, 
as you all know, I have a very <clears throat> non-linear workflow, which, let's just be honest, is just a clever way of saying I get easily distracted by a lot of things when I'm working. Well, that means my laptop goes to sleep all the always, which meant a big part of my days involved dragging Slack and Discord and Twitter and everything else over to the other screen every time the laptop went to sleep. It was annoying and now it's being fixed so hooray for me and for anyone else who has similarly been afflicted by this bug meanwhile in what is arguably the largest case ever if you can't beat them join them the country of the maldives has introduced its plans for a floating city to begin construction next year this floating city will be its answer to climate change and rising sea levels which rich white people say isn't actually happening the entire city will float on the ocean and not if but when sea levels rise well just suck a big one sea levels the city will be located within a circle of disappearing islands which will serve as a breakwater even after the land has disappeared under the water newly grown reefs will also serve to protect the floating city from waves the city itself will include homes stores hospitals schools and public spaces according to interestingengineering.com the waterfront residences will start at around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is pretty pricey but that's the price you have to pay if you don't want to live underwater in the maldives i suppose there's no word on when construction will complete for this project but i for one would like to point out that if kevin costner is not there for the ribbon cutting ceremony that is simply a missed opportunity and i will not have it Waterworld is a cinematic treasure you see and it deserves recognition Samsung had its third unpacked event in four months this week, and at some point you have to ask, is Samsung a house guest? Or is it just a full-blown renter at this point? Laptops were coming out of the suitcases this time, including the Galaxy Book Pro, the Pro 360, the Galaxy Book Not Pro, and the Galaxy Book Odyssey. The Odyssey is Samsung's new gaming laptop, and yeah, that's a pretty solid name for a gaming laptop. Well played, Samsung. The Galaxy Book and Book Pro were built in cooperation with Intel and Microsoft and have Intel's Evo certification, which probably means something important, at least to Intel. The Galaxy Pro 360 is a two-in-one, as the name suggests. All of these laptops have the usual alphabet soup of specifications, and you can hit the link in the show notes to read up on them, but I wanted to spend some time on the Galaxy Book Odyssey. Though the Odyssey may not come to the U.S., which is a bummer for sure, this thing is a beast, which a gaming laptop should be. Starting around $1399, you've got a 15.6-inch laptop with 11th generation Intel Core H-series processor, 32 gigs of RAM, up to 2 terabytes of SSD storage, and an NVIDIA RTX 3050 Ti GPU. Those are some boss specs, yo, and I'm suddenly looking a little sideways at this MSI. I'm just kidding, MSI. I still love you, but damn, that other laptop is... Yum. Anyway, the Odyssey, which, by the way, I've misspelled six times so far in my script, will not be coming to the U.S. either way, so it's probably not a big deal, but still... Dang, man, that's a whole lot of laptop for not a whole lot of money, all things considered. And finally, our headline of the week goes to 9to5Google, who writes, quote, The OnePlus watch will be back in stock tomorrow, just in case you needed a paperweight. 
Ouch. It's true that the 9 to 5 Google review said that no one should buy it until the company shows a ton of improvements, some of which have actually been pushed out to the watch in the first major update. But 9 to 5 Google goes further by suggesting that OnePlus may have never sold this watch in the first place. The news outlet wasn't able to find a single confirmed report of anyone actually buying the watch, at least not in the U.S. Several commenters chimed in indicating that they had indeed bought the watch. Some said it was garbage. Others said it was fine, dude, lighten up. Regardless, it's a great headline and we'll leave the rest of the speculation as exactly that, just speculation. And you should probably not buy the OnePlus watch when it goes back on sale, but you can buy the Wise watch, you know, depending on what Cliff has to say, coming right up. Backend, application, API, bugs, attachment, DevOps, backend, frameworks, backward, compiling, orienting, natural language, software, blue text editor, bookmark, Boolean web server. Welcome to Tech Yeah! If you're familiar with the brand Wise, it's most likely for their smart home products, and specifically their streaming cameras, which can be purchased for about the same price as a Sizzler steak dinner. But if you've watched them closely over the past few years, you'll have noticed that they've expanded their range of products to include items like a smart scale, a fitness band, a thermostat, and a robot vacuum. Now they've introduced a line of smartwatches, available in a 44mm and a 47mm screen size that if you were lucky enough to get in on the pre-order, cost just $20 US. Now those pre-ordered watches have begun to arrive on the doorsteps of consumers, so we can finally answer the question we've waited months to find out. Can a smartwatch that costs so little be worth a purchase? The answer is quite possibly yes. The unit we're reviewing here is the 47mm size. Let's get the obvious out of the way. Yes, like so many other wearable offerings, the watch from Wise apes the design of the Apple Watch, albeit an Apple Watch that has been built to a much lower cost. And that's not to say it feels cheaply made. It's built mostly of aluminum, feels tightly constructed, and is rated at IP68 for splash and water resistance up to 2 meters. And like the Apple Watch, it's a squircle rather than the round design of competitors like those from OnePlus or Samsung. The included band is made of a soft-touch silicone, which means it's comfortable on the wrist, but tends to collect dust and grime with extended wear. Supposedly it's removable, though it wasn't obvious to me how that happens at a glance, with no visible pens to pull and release it. Wise offers additional leather and silicone bands for purchase if you feel the need to customize it. Between the water resistance rating and the standard band material, this is a device you can shower with and sweat on without the worry of compromising its function. The LCD screen is bright enough to read indoors and out, and extends close enough to the edges of the chassis that there is very little bezel. Interaction with the Wise Watch is a combination of touches to the screen and a single button mounted on the right side. The underside contains sensors for both heart rate and blood oxygen percentage. The 47mm unit ships with a 300mAh battery, which Wise says is good for up to 9 days of use. I wasn't able to get that far, with my unit lasting about 7 days on one charge. That charging comes courtesy of a typical for a smartwatch USB-A to proprietary end with pens cable. 
It works just fine with the charging pin connecting to the watch magnetically. The software of the Wise Watch is where you see the value-oriented nature of the device show up. It is by no means fast, mostly I'm sure due to the speed of the processor inside. Wise has smartly avoided adding animations between any of the screens, which makes transitions feel immediate, if not especially speedy. The watch, after a recent firmware update, has to my count 11 available watch faces with varying degrees of information provided and several color options for each. It's nice that you're able to, with at least one, view calories burned as well as the latest heart rate and blood oxygen percentages measured. Like Wear OS and Samsung's Tizen smartwatch software, swipes take you between the watch face to various screens to show you settings, notifications, a more detailed screen for fitness information, and shortcuts to screens for sleep tracking, timers, heart rate measurement, and more. If you've used the aforementioned smartwatch OSs, you'll find this familiar territory, even though the experience isn't nearly as polished. This is not a smartwatch for those who are looking for actionable notifications, as you're not able to do more than read and dismiss them. App compatibility with notifications is also limited. Expected information like weather is available, along with the ability to find your smartphone quickly through a function in the settings menu. If your needs for a smartwatch fall mostly under basic health and fitness tracking, the Wise Watch will serve you well. With step tracking, sleep tracking, heart rate monitoring, and blood oxygen accuracy all falling within close range of the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3 I used for comparison, I feel it's safe to say the Wise Watch does a good job on all of those measurables, including support for reporting to Google Fit. It does not, however, cater to those who want more specific fitness tracking, such as swimming or running or workout regimens that some other smartwatches offer you. The fact that you can get this much smartwatch for $20 is absolutely stunning. The 47mm Wise Watch offers basic smartwatch functionality done well in a package that feels much more expensive than it is. That you can get an aluminum and glass build, the ability to customize the plethora of watch faces it offers, as well as replace the band if you like with something more to your tastes, integrate the fitness tracking into Google Fit, and get a week's worth of battery life makes the wearable easy to recommend, as long as you don't need to reply to notifications or need a ton of fitness tracking options. Honestly, if there's a downside, it's that Wise is currently sold out of them and they're being scalped on eBay for more than twice the original asking price. But then that in itself says a lot about the value the Wise watch brings to your wrist. Folding screens and folding phones seem to be the next evolution in smartphone design, and I have to say... It's pretty cool. Taking the phone out of your pocket and opening it up to a much bigger experience is powerful. And the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2 is designed to give you just such a powerful feeling. But it should. This is a $2,000 phone, for Christ's sake. At the risk of sounding crude, this phone should come with a steak dinner and a blowjob. And you do get a premium experience, but is it premium enough? We're going to ask that question as we appropriately and ironically review a $2,000 smartphone immediately after reviewing a $20 smartwatch. This is our full review of the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2. The 
first impression you get off of this phone is, wow, that's a big screen. That's when you take it out of the box because the phone ships to you with the screen open. So you pick it up and you close it and then you think to yourself, wow, that screen is small. Now, the front screen isn't so much small as it is narrow, but let's be honest, Okay, well, yeah, it's it's actually very small. Yeah, I was kidding myself. The front screen is 6.23 inches, but at a comical 25 by 9 aspect ratio. The inside screen is close to, but not quite a square, at 7.6 inches. And I realize that both of these measurements are taken on a diagonal from the upper left to the lower right. So while on the face of it, it doesn't seem like that big of a jump, it's actually a very big jump. The build quality on the phone is quite great. You will notice that the cover screen is a little bit off-center and that might bug you a little bit. The hinge side of the screen has a significantly larger bezel than the non-hinge side. This is emphasized by the infinity edge curve on the non-hinge side as well. There's a single punch hole camera in the center of the cover screen and in the center of the right half of the inner screen, if that makes sense. On the right, you'll find volume keys and the power button, which also has a built-in fingerprint reader. On the left is the hinge. Top and bottom, you have insanely loud and clear speakers. I mean, it's not even close. These are the best speakers I've ever heard on a smartphone. And there's also a single USB Type-C port on the bottom. The inner screen is covered by a screen protector over the ultra-thin glass, which sounds nice, but... If you're gonna put a gummy feeling screen protector over it, what's the point in making the screen with ultra thin glass? The inside screen feels like plastic and okay, gummy is a bit of an overstatement, but your finger definitely does not glide over the screen like it does over glass. The hinge is smooth and so, so satisfying. Samsung put a lot of work into that hinge and you know, then put a lot of work into reworking the hinge and the result is a much better iteration than that on the original fold. The hinge can serve as a a nice tripod for the selfie camera which is convenient when you're in a zoom call or when you're in a video call with vendor builds lego and using it as a camera to record yourself it's a master class in engineering and it works as expected every time except for the hinge gap which i'm still not a fan of but the hinge itself is a marvel so i'm going to forgive that Speaking of the screen protector on the inner screen, I have a few bubbles in mind after just one month. The bubbles formed up at the top of the hinge right over the hinge, and they're easy enough to push down and eliminate temporarily, but they always come back. And while we're on the topic of a hinge, yes, there is a crease, yes, it is noticeable, and yes, you do get used to it. It's really not that big of a deal. On the back of the phone, you've got what is quickly becoming Samsung's typical camera bump with three sensors that we'll talk about later. On the inside, you've got a Snapdragon 865 processor, 12 gigabytes of RAM, and either 256 or 512 gigabytes of storage. There are two batteries that combine to form a single 4500 milliamp hour battery, like a Voltron battery or something. The phone is just a beast and it's well built. You will want to treat it with kid gloves, that's for sure, but it is still very well built. On the software side, this phone acts largely like a lot of other Samsung phones, with two notable exceptions. The first is continuity, which moves the app that's opened on the cover screen onto the inside screen when the phone is opened, and vice versa when the phone is closed. The software is a bit tricky. Some apps work perfectly, other apps require a switch to be toggled for them to do that, and others simply don't work at all. Most major apps work without a hitch, but other apps just 
You get a little tricky. It's not a terrible experience. In general, if a toggle needs to be toggled, Samsung will put you right on that toggle screen so you can just toggle until the cows come home. I wish Samsung had the chops to make all apps resize hell or high water, but I'm also not a developer, so honestly, what the hell do I know? The second bit of software is similar to other Samsung phone offerings, and that is in multi-window mode and split-screen mode. When the inside screen is open, you can open two apps side-by-side, and you can even add a third or even a fourth app in pop-up mode. I actually haven't pushed to see how many apps could be opened in pop-up mode, but suffice it to say, the fact that you can open up four apps at the same time, one of which being the camera, is pretty wild. And of course, this goes back to the whole idea that you've got this screen real estate open, so you may as well make the most out of it. Adding to this idea, connecting a Bluetooth mouse and keyboard to the phone gives you a cursor and a keyboard, and you can be hella productive with this phone. There were times that I'd go an hour or more just typing and mousing away on the unfolded screen like it was a teeny tiny monitor for a laptop. I mean, it's small as hell for sure, and we'll get more to that in a bit. One other part of the software that bugs me more than a little bit is the app drawer. Samsung has adopted the side-swiping app drawer that doesn't wrap around from Z to A and vice versa. And what that means is if you open up the app drawer and you see Amazon Shopping and you want to access Zillow, you've got a long day ahead of you. It's not that bad, but it sure is annoying and it could so easily be solved just by allowing the app drawer to wrap around. Another thing, and this is a laziness thing on my part, but bear with me, is when you use Samsung Switch software to go from a Samsung phone to another Samsung phone, it's really awesome because Samsung not only copies over all your apps, but it copies over your wallpaper and folders as well, except on the fold. It does that on the inner screen, but the cover screen still has some default 4 by whatever it is layout that's way too tall. So it doesn't create your folders on that side. I kind of get that, but that's the main reason I had to use the stupid app drawer so often. Now, I could have recreated my folders and stuff on that cover screen, just like I've done for every other Android phone I've ever used ever. And by the way, Google, please fix that. But I didn't want to because of the aforementioned laziness. So I ended up just using the app drawer a ton, and it was not awesome. Just a couple of other notes. There were some apps that force you to turn the phone sideways when the phone is open. HBO Max is a candidate. But those apps don't let you turn the phone 180 degrees to flip it over. They're like stuck in one orientation, which is really annoying because most apps put that cover screen on the bottom and the camera module on the top, which does not work with any of my wireless charging stands. If I could turn the phone over, I'd be able to charge while watching, but most apps wouldn't allow me to do that which kind of sucked. Many apps ended up getting letterboxed to the inner screen because they weren't designed for square screens. That makes sense, but for applications like watching videos, you end up with precious little extra screen that you would get if you just used, you know, like an S21 Ultra. Sure, it's big, but when you're letterboxing the hell out of things, it's not that much bigger. That's why TCL's fold and roll concept appeals to me so much, especially after using the Galaxy Z Fold 2. The fold and roll gives you a much more tablet-like experience, you know, in theory, because they haven't actually released it yet. One final note about the software. Last month, when the WebView bug was affecting smartphones and causing apps to crash, Call of Duty Mobile was one of those apps that was very crashy. And I didn't think of it at the time, but long after my other phones had been updated to fix the bug, Call of Duty kept crashing on the Fold 2. That was 
annoying, and it seemed like it took Samsung a few extra weeks to push out the update to fix that bug than, say, the Galaxy S21. Now, I don't necessarily blame Samsung for this, since, hey, Lord knows how many phone patches they had to write and push out, but I'm just saying, Samsung, I paid two grand for this phone. Little help? Overall, the software feels fine, and there are a few tweaks needed here and there to make it a finely finished product, and I know this is a new thing for Android, and there's going to be speed bumps, but still... $2,000 phone, and if you haven't figured it out by now, this is going to be a theme. As for battery life and performance, I mean, what do you want to know? It's a Snapdragon 865 with 12 gigabytes of RAM, so it has all the power and performance you could want. I still haven't developed that 4K export test yet, and yeah, I'll own that. That's my bad. But honestly, this phone can do anything you want it to do. On the battery side, I never went a day where I had to charge it before bedtime, but I did get close. There were the days that I was watching movies on the fold, since, you know, it unfolds into a tablet for optimal viewing, letterboxing notwithstanding, but there's a big battery in here, and it lasts a long time, never fear. And now, let's move on to the camera. The first thing I need to say about the camera in the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2 is that unbeknownst to me, Samsung went ahead and synced all the photos from my Samsung Galaxy Ultra over onto my Fold 2. So in the few times I went to take sample photos with both phones, I honestly have no idea which phone took which photo. So ultimately I ended up with fewer samples than I wanted. I'm not happy about that, but what are you gonna do? Well, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna take some pics, bro, and pics we took. But before we get into that, let's talk about the hardware a little bit. The Galaxy Z Fold 2 has a triple camera setup on the back. All three cameras are 12 megapixel shooters, and the only difference between them are the aperture and the focal length. So, you know, everything else. Starting off in broad daylight, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to learn that the cameras are great in broad daylight. Wow, I know, shocking. Color accuracy is great when switching between lenses, though I did notice the wide angle tends to be a shade darker than the others, probably due to the slightly smaller aperture. One thing to note is the fisheye effect in the wide angle lens. You're definitely going to notice things off to the side have a prominent tilt to them that I don't think is adequately explained by just the perspective at where the shots are taken. In the shots from the main camera, buildings look less leaning tower of Pisa, so keep that in mind if you're shooting cityscapes. Another thing to note is that the 2x optical lens tends to wash out darker colors and has a slightly softer focus when your subject is in the foreground. I mean, a lot of this is nitpicky BS, but $2,000, you're allowed to pick nits. For macro shots, you are treated to super sharp focus with a nice bokeh in the background. This doesn't seem to be the work of software processing. This is just how good these camera sensors have gotten, and it's really remarkable. What is not remarkable is how the cameras perform at night. Highlights are blown out everywhere, focus is a little soft, and you lose a lot of details in the extremes, the really dark and the really bright areas. The only camera worth using at night is the main sensor. The ultrawide suffers from focus issues, and the telephoto is just... No. I took one shot with the telephoto into a fish tank, and the fish looks like a Minecraft character. It's not pretty. The main sensor holds up the camera at night, though, for sure, even though it overexposes in trying to turn night into day. Samsung, it's okay to have dark colors at night. We knew that going in because, you know, it was nighttime. 
The main sensor doesn't hit a home run every time for sure, but you're going to get the most consistent results from it. With the ultra wide or telephoto sensor, you honestly may as well not take the photo. And I mean, hey, I get it. Night and low light shots are hard. That's why phone makers have been obsessing about them for four years now. And to be honest, no one's really gotten it right. So I don't want to seem overly critical, except, well, that's my job and that's what you all pay me to do. So yeah, I'm going to be overly critical. And by the way, $2,000 phone, people. Sliding around to the selfie cameras, remember there are two of them, one on the inside and one on the outside. The one on the inside is better than the one on the cover screen, and both of them are pretty terrible at night. Portrait shots from both sides of the camera are pretty damn good, actually. The software blurring effect cuts really close to the subject and doesn't suffer from some of the issues that you'll typically see. It captures and blurs the background in between my arm when my head is propped up, and aside from some really close pixel peeping, the software doesn't really even trip up on hairlines and wisps from my stately head of hair. Action shots are possible, again, when you're using burst mode more than auto mode. Burst mode takes a series of shots and then presents you with the one that it liked the best. That's pretty typical of burst modes, and Samsung is usually pretty on the ball about which frame to pull. As for video, during the day, the video camera is... Okay, stabilization isn't great when you're walking and shooting, but pans can be smooth. Just like the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra, when you shoot selfie videos while walking, the footage looks like you had your camera on a frickin' track. It is super smooth. As for video at night, just don't. Every camera is hot garbage on this phone shooting video at night. It's grainy and just... Well, you know what? It's shitty. Sorry about the language, but I did not shoot a single second of usable footage at night anywhere from any camera. It's just... It's just a mess, and that was incredibly disappointing, if I'm totally honest. Finally, we get to Super Slow-Mo, which is my favorite video mode ever, and I'm happy to report that Samsung still has it here. Footage is amazingly sharp and clear and slow, and it's just a joy to watch. So... That's going to do it for the cameras on this phone. They're really just okay, which is fine. Low light is definitely a problem here, but with everything else going on with this phone, you know, like the fact that it has two screens and it frickin' folds in half, well, I'm not too surprised that Samsung didn't do well in the camera department. But again, to command a $2,000 price tag, your phone has to be incredible at everything. And when it comes to the camera, this phone just isn't. Now, there's one last segment that I want to discuss with you that I probably won't ever talk about again, and that's how fundamentally different this phone is compared to literally every other phone out there, except for like, you know, three others at this point. I want to talk about using the phone on a day-to-day -day basis because you've probably guessed by now that it's very, very different. First of all, I want to point out that the screens you get on the Galaxy Z Fold, the cover screen and the inside screen, are both too small to serve the function that they are seemingly designed for. The cover screen is way too small to be a phone screen, and the inside screen is way too small to be a tablet. Now, the really cool part is that while the open phone may be too small to be a tablet, it's actually very large for an air quotes phone screen. So in that sense, it's pretty great. There's also the argument to be made that you can close the phone and stick this into your pocket. So regardless of the screen size, it's pretty awesome. And that is a very compelling argument. 
One issue that I encountered when using the phone while opened is in the area of phone stands. I have many kinds of phone stands lying around my house, and the most common that I use has a circular base with a slot in it that holds the phone. Well, the open phone is too top-heavy for that kind of phone holder, which actually made watching content harder, not easier. Also, several apps lock the phone to a horizontal orientation, which is when the crease goes horizontal, as I mentioned earlier. Many phones lock that orientation to one side or the other. When you half-fold the screen to use it as its own sand, most apps do not resize to only show content in the upper part of the screen. That is annoying, and that really needs to be fixed. Other apps get letterboxed, so they don't really work well in either orientation. Overall, it's kind of a mess figuring out which apps work and which apps work well and which apps don't work at all. Samsung has a lot of work to do here. Folding the phone up and sliding into a pocket isn't bad, and the phone isn't so thick as to be inconvenient in a pants pocket. Fortunately, I had this phone during the spring when I wore a coat a lot, so this phone fit quite nicely in the inside breast pocket. The phone doesn't fit very well into clamp-style phone holders. You know, those phone holders that spring shut and clamp the phone? The Galaxy Z Fold 2 doesn't really fit into them well at all. So when you're navigating, if you have a phone holder like that, you're going to be in trouble. That's not really a problem for a dual phone wielder like myself, but it's a problem for people for whom this is their only phone. Now, all of these are niche cases for sure, but they're all worth mentioning. This phone fundamentally changes the way you use a smartphone, but it's also worth mentioning that it's not always for the better. One other note, be prepared to talk about this phone a lot. Whether it's cashiers or people waiting in line with you or whatever, people will see this phone and talk to you about it. For me, that's fun. For you, who knows? So where does that leave us? Well, using the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2 is a transformative experience. You won't look at smartphones the same way again, and that's perfectly okay. It's too soon to say whether or not folding phones will be the next big thing, but it's kind of looking that way. TCL is throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Companies like Samsung and Xiaomi are taking a more conservative approach. Personally, I think I'm looking forward to the rollables a little bit more than foldables, but that's just me. Now, this is a great phone with amazing build quality and a very good camera setup, but it costs $2,000. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't necessarily disqualify it. For everything that the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2 does, you should expect to pay a premium. For living on the bleeding edge of tech, you should expect to pay a premium. For having a tablet, small as it may be, fold up and slip into your pants pocket, you should expect to pay a premium. This is a great phone that checks a lot of boxes. But it doesn't check all the boxes. The cover screen, for as large as it is, is still too small. Even during the pandemic, when I don't go out anywhere at all, there are still too many times that I had to use my phone one-handed, and that is damn hard on this phone, whether it's open or closed. Even during the pandemic, I still want to have an amazing camera setup that I can use to capture moments with my family, and that is damn hard on this phone. For $2,000, let me say that again, for $2,000, I need a phone that checks every damn box that there is, even boxes I didn't even know that I want. And this phone does not do that. 
If this were the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold with a cover screen that isn't 25 by 9 and it had the cameras of the S21 Ultra and it unfolded into a tablet, now you're in $2,000 territory. And that's not to say you shouldn't buy this phone. If you want to be the person who lives in the future, this phone is the future. If you have disposable income laying around and you want a conversation starter, this is a very expensive conversation starter. This phone is so freaking cool to own and to use, it's frankly shocking how far we've come in this arena in as short a time as we have. This phone is really great, and I've loved using it for the review, and I can't wait to return it. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to not thank Samsung for not sending me a review unit of a Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 2, but I would like to thank them for the 100-day return policy, which I will be using. I'd like to not thank Wise for not sending out a review unit of the Wise Watch, but I would like to thank Cliff Thomas for buying one and for reviewing it on this show, and of course for all his hard work behind the scenes. I want to remind you that we're hitting the old pause button on this podcast for the next month while I get my more regular employment in order. And to remind you that there will still be a Beyond the Doubt and Doubting Thomas monthly recap released this month. But I would like to thank you for putting up with this hiatus and as always, for giving me the benefit of the doubt. The inner screen is covered by a screen protector over the ultra-thin glass, which sounds nice, but damn it. I'm making a podcast, woman. What you want? What? I'm making a podcast, woman. Oh, sorry. I thought you said I'm naked. What? Well, I am naked too, but that's unrelated. <laughs>